Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. With a diploma in youth development and several years working directly in youth care, uh, the youth care system in Calgary, northern Alberta, and in Lethbridge. Once landing in Lethbridge, Christine began her 24-year journey with the YWCA. During her tenure, uh, she managed the Supported Independent Living Program, the Women's Emergency Shelter, and Outreach Services. For the last 10 years, she has led the organization as the CEO. She is known for program development and has established three programs that garnered awards through the YWCA Canada, two of which are now offered nationally. Kudos, Christine. Uh, Christine has continued with her education, having completed a BA in Human Service Administration and a Master's in Leadership Management. She is also a registered social worker. She has been recognized for her leadership with the Queen's Jubilee Medallion and was the first recipient of the Mentorship Award through the YWCA. As you have heard, Christine's work has been uh, within the not-for-profit sector with youth, domestic and sexual violence, girls' programming, and housing. She has contributed to the advancement of several community working groups, including SHIA, CMARD, Sexual um, Violence Action Committee, and the Domestic Violence Action Team. It is a distinct pleasure for me to introduce our guest speaker today, Christine Cassie. Christine. So good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for the invitation to speak at SACPA. When I received the call to speak and was asked to speak on the topic of emergency shelter space, is the lack thereof putting women at risk, I thought, okay, how do I answer this? The issue is not the lack of space. The issue is the violence that is happening in our world. Violence that is perpetrated towards intimate partners, violence that is targeted towards women and girls. As stated by former United Nations Secretary General Kofi Annan in 1999, violence against women is perhaps the most shameful human rights violation, and it is perhaps the most pervasive. It knows no boundaries of geography, culture, or wealth. As long as it continues, we cannot claim to be making progress towards equality, development, and peace. At least one out of every three women around the world has been beaten, coerced into sex, or otherwise abused in her lifetime. Violence against women is a global problem, and women and girls are susceptible to abuse and violence at every stage of their life. On just one day in this world, 53,230 women and 34,794 children sought refuge from domestic violence. And of those women, 340 were pregnant. 11,747 women and children were turned away from shelters and were subject to continued risk. On one day in Alberta, just one day, 
Our 50 women's emergency shelters will on average help 744 women and 606 children. Of those women helped, over 50 will be pregnant. And on the same day, 22 will be threatened with a gun. 70 women and 78 children will have been turned away as our beds are full. A few years back, we were part of a national study that looked at reasons why women chose to go to women's emergency shelters. Their response was, it was my last resort. Just think, for women to come to a shelter, they have no money. Usually just the clothes on their backs when they arrive. No family to call or friends where they could stay. The situation has become so grave, they fear for their lives and for the lives of their children. There are physical injuries, emotional trauma, and typically sexual assaults are also very common. But in addition to the immediate impact, domestic violence has li lifelong consequences. A number of studies have shown that beyond injury and death, victims of domestic violence are more likely to report a range of negative mental and physical health outcomes that are both acute and chronic in nature. Post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anxiety, heart disease, arthritis, long-standing issues from concussions, and compared to the general population, victims of domestic violence are 15 times more likely to self-medicate by using alcohol and drugs. What we know is only about 30% of domestic assaults are ever reported to authorities. Our numbers or our statistics in Lethbridge, in Alberta, in Canada are incomplete and provide only a partial picture of the enormous scope of the issue of domestic violence. The World Health Organization estimates that one in four women in Canada will experience intimate partner violence or sexual violence in her lifetime. This is not an issue of poverty, although poverty leads to many issues within domestic violence. But according to Statistics Canada, 70% of women who, ha who report having experienced spousal violence are working women and 71% have a university or college degree. So why is it that 25% of all violent crime in Canada reported to police involve cases of family violence? Why is it that women and girls make up 70% of police reported family violence victims? I believe we need, look, we need only look at the culture of disregard towards women and girls that has been created, fostered, and supported in our society. We need look no further than the media stories in the past few years to authenticate this assertion. Bill Cosby, Gian Gameshi, Floyd Mayweather, Ray Price, Oscar Pistorius, Rihanna, Retea Parsons, Amanda Todd, or how about the Dalhousie University? The dentistry students. Called a scandal. And where police saw nothing criminal, so no charges were laid, but somehow posting pictures of female classmates with statements of who they would like to have hate sex with or use chloroform on or bang until stress is relieved or unconscious is just boys being boys. I know there was action by the university, don't get me wrong, but only after enormous pressure. Not that they instinctively felt that it was the right thing to do. In fact, their initial reluctance to work with police was deemed a misunderstanding. How about we bring it a little closer to home? So some people are upset with Bill 6. And some people felt it was their right to post messages on social media stating such things as someone's got to man up and kill her. And another post stating, put a pitchfork through Notley's neck. 
It is not uncommon for elected officials, particularly women, to be called names, and I mean venomous, ugly names, like the C-word. And yet they do their job, hold their heads high. Melanie Thomas, a University of Calgary political science professor, states, even when people fundamentally disagreed with male politicians of a similar level, such as former premiers Ralph Klein or Jim Prentice, or former Prime Minister Stephen Harper, they didn't attack them online with nearly this level of violence. Alberta Energy Minister Mark McQuaid-Boyd was overcome with emotion when addressing the legislature on Friday, saying that a climate has been created where people are afraid to speak. Our democratically elected leaders are literally being scared into silence. The comments that drive them to this point are more than gentle chides or constructive suggestions. They are explicit. They are violent and they are unacceptable, no matter what your position on the government policy. And this is just the progression of what happens in a woman's life. Starting young in elementary school, we hear and remember the name-calling, focusing on our body parts, making us feel dirty and lesser than. Because girls, throughout your life, how many times were the words bitch or slut used against you? How many times did we sit and politely listen to sexist, racist, or violent jokes? Remember, it's not just female politicians that receive online harassment, threats, or name-calling. The sextortion of Amanda Todd ultimately led to her suicide. And cyber violence is now a leading topic of discussion and action in virtually all of our YWCA programming. We have become complacent in our lives, degrading the ability of women, attacking women's ability by attacking her gender, ensuring she knows where she belongs, making feminism a bad thing, like equality being something for someone to give when it should represent what we all deserve to have in this world. Although Premier Notley is taking the high road and describing the actions on social media as regrettable, a threat to our Premier is a threat that impacts all of us and should be dealt with. It is criminal, in my mind. It is frightening and it is unacceptable. Not addressing these threats as swiftly and harshly as possible undermines any work we do to end violence against women and girls. I contend still that this is not a space issue. We have become complacent, and women and girls have become disposable. We like to say that domestic violence is unacceptable, that it is a crime. However, recent findings demonstrate clearly that men who kill their female partners tend to get lighter sentences, are treated more leniently at most stages of the criminal justice process, such as fewer charges for first-degree murder. Myrna Dawson of the University of Guelph calls it an intimacy discount. This may mean that women killed by male partners are still seen as property, and as such, these femicides are not treated as seriously as other homicides. One writer once acknowledged that if a terrorist group was systematically entering homes and battering the occupants of the home, there would be outrage and immediate action. But somehow, we continue to acknowledge the presence of violence against women with relative complacency. Just this year, 2015, Alberta government officials, Crown prosecutors, police and social workers have been growing more concerned about the escalation of violence, including the use of weapons regarding domestic violence. Just look at the PowerPoint. Most of these women were killed by intimate or former partners, some by men who were acquaintances, and some, sadly, their deaths are still under investigation. Anecdotally, the YWCA sees the outcomes of court, and maybe the court decisions are based on hope for change for the offender, but frequently, offenders of domestic violence see minimal jail time, 
loose probation or, or loose terms for their release. Just look at the murder of Tina Fontaine in Winnipeg. A 13-year-old girl found in a plastic bag discarded in the Red River. This wasn't a case of domestic violence, but it highlights concerns for public safety. The man charged with her crime was a 53-year-old with some 92 prior convictions in New Brunswick, Ontario, Alberta, and Manitoba. These convictions were based on anything from simple breaches to very serious violent offences. And although he had spent many years in correctional facilities, couldn't anything else have been done to protect society or to protect that child? Or let's look at the recent triple homicide in Ontario in September of 2015. All three women were known to him. In fact, he had served 19 months for choking, for strangling one of the women. He refused to sign the probation order to stay away from one of the three women, which should have been a huge red flag of his disrespect and potential refusal to follow any of the conditions of his early release. And in short order, in his release, of his release, he murdered all three of the women. Or our friend Nadine Scow, an ex-boyfriend whom she hadn't dated for some time, breaks in and viciously murders her. He had been charged and convicted of sexually assaulting another woman and ordered to leave the country, yet stayed. Stayed long enough to commit unthinkable acts of torture. Again, was there nothing that could have been done to protect Nadine and to protect society? Do you know what question we get asked the most? Why did she stay? I always think of this one woman. She had been married for 50 years. And when she came to our shelter, she stated she was either going to leave and live her last few, life, uh, few years of her life in peace or leave in a body bag, and she chose peace. But when she did this, her children and grandchildren all said, you stayed this long, why leave now? And when she left, she left with nothing. No belongings, no home, no children by her side, no grandchildren. She was alone. For other women... Leaving may mean disregarding their faith beliefs, leaving the children with only one parent when they believe they should be raised by two, or a choice between living with the violence or living on the street. Others, well, they still may have hope for the relationship. And we can't and won't judge. They are making a decision the best way they can with what they have with their resources at that time. We have a detrimental theme of victim blaming that exists within the realms of violence against women that is unparalleled in any other criminal situation. Stated best uh, by a professor, responsibility is still laid on the victim. Years of educating the public about these issues seem to have resulted only in the expectation that women should now know better than to let themselves get raped or abused. Only gendered crimes generate this kind of victim-blaming responses that rape and domestic violence produce. But maybe, as we peel away our inaction, maybe blaming the victim makes this world a little bit more palatable. Because to accept that such evil exists makes us all vulnerable. We need to address that vulnerability. Our complacency is not okay. Our fear is not okay. Our sexualization of girls is not okay. And our continued violence towards women and girls is definitely not okay. Getting people's attention, taking a stand no matter how small, helps to change the course of complacency. It helps to recognize what we have become blind to. It gives strength to our society where value is afforded to all people. No one asks to be abused. No one likes to be beaten. No one has this type of brutality coming to them because they pushed his button. 
How many times do we apologize for focus, focusing on women at the YWCA? And how many times do we correct those outside of the YWCA because they feel the victims are responsible for their attacks? Well, no more. We focus on women and their inherent rights to safety because we will no longer have women be disposable in our society. Lauren Oates, a Canadian human rights activist, once stated, it's not governments or superheroes that will change the world, it's ordinary people. And we call on each of you to take up the challenge and let your voices be heard and the silence that surrounds violence and demand change because violence against women and girls in all of its forms is not okay. Maureen Adams of the Canadian Women's Foundation states that ending violence against women requires a long-term strategy that empowers women and addresses the factors that lead to this abuse. This means we must address violence along its full continuum, helping children who have witnessed abuse, teaching teens about healthy relationships, and helping women to rebuild their lives. If women continue to earn 73% of what men earn, and if a vast amount of mother-led families continue to live in poverty, then women and children will continue to be vulnerable to abuse. It is estimated in Canada that domestic violence costs taxpayers about $9 billion a year. We cannot allow violence against women and girls to be the hallmark of our culture. And this isn't about disregarding the role of men or the violence that men experience. It is about our collective worth as citizens. We need to walk in our sisters' footsteps, those steps that line the highway of fear in B.C., those steps of our women who feel stuck and betrayed, where they are denied the most basic rights of dignity and life. We hear the stories every day. The woman in rural southern Alberta whose husband removed all the uh, parts of the car engine so she couldn't leave. Or the 17-year-old girl who really thought that his jealousy meant he loved her, that giving a blowjob was her obligation, not her pleasure, not as part of a respectful and loving relationship, but as his right. Or the child who witnessed the violence at home that told us they felt like they were bleeding inside. Safety is the most basic of our inherent human rights that must be afforded to all of our citizens. So no, it's not a space issue that is putting women at risk. It is an issue of violence and complacency. Violence is preventable. There's no magic pill to eliminate it. But rather, we need a commitment through policy and investment, a combination of efforts that address income, education, health, laws, and infrastructure that can significantly reduce violence and its tragic consequences. We can and must do better. This problem affects too many Canadians and comes with too great a personal and public cost to continue on its current path. First and foremost, abusive behaviour towards women must be viewed as unacceptable, as a crime, not just in words but through actions that places human life as the most highly valued. We need the Maria Fitzpatricks of the world, those brave women who share their story to highlight the reality of so many lives that speak of the unspeakable and unbelievable truths that exist. We need our community. Communities need to have an important role in defining solutions to violence and providing support to victims. And yes, progressive programming, such as second stage housing, that addresses the needs of children, youth, and adults, that provides counseling, skill development, and safety. And that is just one way to address our current epidemic and crisis of violence against women. And let's not forget the men. Men must be engaged in the process, too, as agents of change, standing alongside women to end violence. We need more Trevor Stewarts, who talk openly about the issues, who work tirelessly to end violence. Trevor is set to climb Mount Everest in the spring of 2016 as part of his commitment to raise funds for the YWCA domestic violence programs. 
Every step of his journey reflects the struggle of those addressing violence in their lives. It provides hope for change and inspiration for the rest of us to continue our work. And we hope you will support his journey through following his progress and in providing donations. And as I leave today, I know there is no place like home. I have a home that is filled with peace and love and where I have always felt safe, respected, and encouraged to do more. I wish the same for everyone, to have peace and love and respect in their lives and in their homes. All of us can make this happen through our actions going forward. Thank you for your time.